This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Welcome to Purpose Driven Sobriety. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Driven Sobriety Podcast. My name is Christine and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I would like to thank today's sponsor. Um, She is choosing to remain anonymous, but she is a friend to all of us in recovery, especially in the Central Texas area. Um, I'm very grateful you know who you are. Thank you so, so much for your support. Today on the show, we have Mr. Todd H., on the show. Um, I met Todd through um, one of the recovery pages. And, you know, I've, I've said this a gazillion times on the show that, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer. This is my personal opinion. You're free to agree or disagree as you so choose. Um, but I'm a firm believer in in-person meetings. But, you know, online support groups, I think, really have their place, especially since 2020. But just like with everything else, you try them on, see if they fit. Um, you know, and, um, you know, find where you find where you fit in and, and what fits you well. So anyway, without further ado, Todd, thanks for coming on the show with me. Thank, thank you. Appreciate you having me. No worries. Well, on the show, all we do is we just share, um, you know, what it was like, what happened and what we're like now. Um, you know, mm-hmm. just sharing our experience, strength and help with that person that still suffers. Um, you know, if you're anything like me, you can easily in your mind's eye go back to, you know, whatever date it was that you um, reached where you reached that we're trying to reach that person with some, with some hope. So I would love to, I, I usually wait. I don't want to hear your story until, you know, you, you tell it on the show that way it's, it's, it's fresh and new to me. So I can't wait to hear all the things that, that um, made Todd, Todd, tell me your story, Todd. Awesome. Um, let me do that. I used to, I've told my story quite often. I, I just celebrated two years in uh, November. November Congratulations. 11th. Thank you. That's also my the day my wife and I decided to get married a year ago. So that's that's what I'm doing today. But um, I used to tell my story and, and it has a lot of stuff like prison and death and stuff like in it. And uh, I mean, people should know that i guess but it's not who i am i guess there was a lot of years of it right and that's you know it's uh i don't like to focus on it we'll say but it's part of my story Uh so i'll uh i'll give you the i'll give you the rundown i'm 52 now so i consider myself pretty old i don't say that to anyone else that's my age but i feel older because i wasted a lot of years in addiction 25 or so but uh I started off, uh, I'm from Utah, started off in a small uh, subdivision or a small town in Salt Lake called Sandy. It was a nicer part of Salt Lake up on the up on the hill, we'll say. Uh, I had two educated parents. Both of them went to BYU. Um, Dad was a computer programmer when it first started. Mom was a school teacher. And I was really afforded the best life possible. I, I was uh, I was spoiled. I was I was one of four children. I was the only and oldest boy, so I was pretty much we'll call mom's favorite son. I'm her only son, but um, she called me her favorite son, so that makes me feel good. Um, I wish I would have done more in my life. I'm I'm working on doing more in my life to 
to give back to mom just for what she's done for me. But uh, yeah, I had a I started off normal. Is there such thing as normal? I don't know if we like to use that word is. recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't use that word. But I was like I say, I was afforded every opportunity, every privilege uh, as a child, upper middle income uh, class. And so things were okay uh, for a while. We moved, uh, the worst thing that happened was at 10 years old, we moved to uh, Cardston, Alberta, Canada. My dad's um, family from there. And I went from having all this stuff as a young boy, uh, every toy I wanted, everything I could ever ask my parents for, to moving to the farm and learning how to milk over a hundred head of cattle morning and night and really going to work. And at 10 years old, and this was culture shock. I this was like, no, I don't want any part of this. Um, it sucked, it was really cold 30, 40 below in the, in the winter time. But uh, so that that was a change for me. We took over the, my dad's uh, his father's farm, he, he ran himself over with a tractor. But what happened at that time, this was also the first time for me where violence was introduced into my life. I went to school, and uh, the school we went to, the town we lived in, bordered what was called the Blood Indian Reserve. It was a native uh, reservation there for Blood Indians. And when I went to school, um, I had red hair, and I had freckles, and I had glasses. So I, I imagine even probably you were one of the ones who teased me when I was young. I was just kidding. Well, that red hair and freckles and glasses didn't go over well uh, as a young boy. I was... I was teased. I was, uh, I would get off the bus and I would get beat up by two or three of these native kids at the same time, uh, just because of the way I looked. And I, I don't remember why. I, I couldn't for the life of me figure out why this was happening to me. I, I had, I wish nobody any ill will or, or harm on anybody. I was a loving kid. Um, but that was really my first take on violence. So I put this in the back of my, head you know and uh i was like i said i was picked on i was uh just seemed to be my destination seemed to be my destiny and um that would go on for a while thankfully uh the farm didn't pan we were there a few years and um we moved back to the states we moved to st george utah it's in southern utah and I was just, I was looking like a farm kid, still dressed like a farm kid, still had red hair, freckles, and glasses. And I landed in a middle school now back in the States where I didn't look any part of it. So, I mean, as a, you know, I didn't look normal at all. So it just got worse, you know, the bullying, the teasing. I, I, every day I would walk down the hall in this middle school I landed at and, and the school bully would push me and my drop on my books every day without fail, if not a couple times a day. Um, and that was, uh, so I didn't fit in. And um, I found, a, I found I, I, one Christmas I went to my grandpa's, uh, he also lived, he lived in central Utah. He was my grandpa's from the old school. And I told him what was happening with this bully. And I thought, I thought I was in trouble because my grandpa was going to whip my butt. He told me, he said, if you ever start a fight, I'll whip your ass, I'll whip your butt. He said, but if you ever run from one, I'll whip it worse. So now 
I'm not even a violent person. I don't fight. I didn't know how to fight, but my, he proceeded to tell me that this is what you're going to do. And he rehearsed this with me on a Christmas vacation. The next time this bully pushes me, I'm going to grab him by the collar and I'm going to sink my fist into his nose and he's going to fall down. And then, and his eyes are going to turn black. My grandpa told me all this and, and I'm like, I don't want to do this. I'm 12 years old. I don't, you know, I, but I didn't want to be bullied anymore. I didn't have friends. And but long story short, um, I did that and I went just as I rehearsed. I think I broke the bully's nose and immediately I went to the principal's office. I told him what I did and I didn't get in trouble for it at all. And this kid was still probably laying out in the hall, bleeding all over the hallway in front of all these kids. And uh there was there was quite a good feeling come from that, unfortunately, that, yay, I just beat up the bully. But somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that, that violence wasn't right. That I'm not, you know, I, I'm I'm an older brother to three sisters. And I, you know, I was taught not to be violent with them. I was taught not to be violent with anybody. So this didn't really take with me. But uh, this would also be the time in my life when, uh, you know, I'm still... I mean, I had gained some some attention, but uh, I still didn't have any friends. And there was these kids out on the playground. They were dressed darker, concert clothes, concert T-shirts and stuff. And I could see smoking. Maybe maybe they were smoking. But I went out and uh, to these kids, and they accepted me right off the bat and handed me a cigarette at 12. And um, the next day, it was uh, one of the kids had brought roaches from their parents' ashtray. And so I had started smoking roaches, marijuana roaches. Mm. And uh, and I just fit in. All of a sudden, I'm thinking I'm just the coolest cup of tea in the world. You know, I've got friends now. And it wasn't a day or two later that uh, one kid had brought a, a bottle. I think it was uh, vodka or everything. It might have been vodka. Stole it from his mom and dad's uh, liquor cabinet and brought that to school out on the playground. Here we are in sixth grade. And I remember taking that first drink. I can still remember the warmth of it hitting my belly today and what that felt like. I think any of us who have been alcoholic or, or in any way, shape, or form remembers that. And I just remember the warmth that came over me and immediately the love that I had for that, that I was finally, I, this is where I wanted to be. I'm accepted. I, you know, these are my best friends now. They brought this alcohol. These are, I don't care what they do or what they say. They're my best friends. And so it went on like this for a while. And, it, you know, this is a, not to, to mention a shady bunch of kids, obviously. They had the outcasts, you know. I mean, we, they were those kids. And uh, one of them, uh, one of them I really liked. I got to know pretty well. He was a couple years older than me. Um, his sister lived in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is only two, like two hour and a half, two hours from St. George, Utah. And uh, his sister called us and came up with this harebrained idea that if we took stolen cars to Las Vegas, her boyfriend would pay us $500 a car. I'm still 12 years old, right? I don't even drive. I drive because I learned how to drive on the farm, a tractor. I learned how to drive at 10 years old. So I'm well on and above my years in a lot of things, but mostly just in learning how to get in trouble now. Um, so he told me about this, and we proceeded to think we're going to take stolen cars to the Viva Las Vegas. And we tried. 
and we spent uh, a couple days um, acquiring or working on getting these cars. We ended up stealing 12 or 13 vehicles, trying just to get one vehicle to St. George or to Las Vegas, I'm sorry. And when we left St. George, finally in this truck after we had torn up all the valley at our young age, um, we had a carton of cigarettes on the dashboard. I'm still 12 years old. We had a bottle of liquor under the seat and an AR-15 of his father's in the vehicle, not realizing what the danger involved in what we were doing. My, I, grew, I grew up, my grandpa taught me how to hunt and fish. I knew about guns, never would I use them on a person. I was that, you know, or even, why did we even have that gun? I don't know. But we ended up spinning out the truck. It was wintertime. The truck spun out on I-15, and we ended up in the burrow pit. And uh, right behind us was a Nevada Ranger. <laughs> oh, my and goodness. He, and the Nevada Ranger immediately pulled over. He's checking us, making sure we're okay. And I'm scared to death, right? I, I now, I'm 12, still 12 years old. I'm scared to death. And uh, he's patting us down and making sure we're okay. He says, I'm okay. But we're, I'm a good size for 12, but my 14-year-old friend, he's even bigger than me. He, he could have been 18 or 20, right? And the, the officer asked, Where, where's your license? We said, well, we left it back in Las Vegas at the Motel 6. I've never even been to Las Vegas. Didn't know if there was a Motel 6, but I just figured that would work. And he's actually buying into this. And, and a second later, there was an APB come over his radio. The, the vehicle we were in, they read off the license plate. They came over the radio to this officer. He looked at both of us. And he smashed our faces into the hood of the truck. And at this point, I was probably crying. Um, so that's my first take on, on getting in trouble, you know, where this life was leading me already at 12 years old. Um, we were in Nevada, so I didn't get the opportunity to go back to this, uh, you know, little Mormon state of Utah to a nice little detention center there. They took us to Las Vegas DT. And uh, at that old, at that age, and I remember going there and seeing guys with like uh, hairnets on their heads, you know, Latinos, and kids who had been convicted of killing policemen at, at 14 or 16 years old. So all of a sudden, I'm thrown into this this mix of people, and I was just, it was destined to get worse. I didn't want it to. I was scared. Um, they ended up, uh, we ended up going back to Utah to court on all this, and I got like 1,500 work hours for it. So it was all I got. Being so young, excuse me. But my grandpa stepped in. They were going to give me away to the state. Right? They were going to take me from my parents and give me away because I'm. this is not a way a child should act, right? So my grandpa, the same one that told me to beat this bully up, stepped in and said, I'll take the boy. He took me back to his place, which was in the country in central Utah. And uh, I was working off these work hours, trying to toe the line, be a good kid, still trying to sneak smoke in and do these things. But my grandpa wasn't having it, and he was strict with me. <clears throat> um, I tried that for a while. My mom and dad had moved to San Antonio, Texas. And this is where Texas comes in. Yeah. Dad, there, all to this is where I got my little, my little taste of Texas. I moved down to San Antonio, a little town called Bernie, outside of San Antonio. And I, I, I wanted to live back with my mom and dad. And my grandpa was too hard. And it was this guy making me not smoke. He's making me work hard. He's making me get good grades. He would actually go to my school to make sure that I wouldn't leave school and go out and smoke. He'd sit and talk to all the jocks and all the cheerleaders. 
eight hours a day and sit in my in my high school, my middle school, it was ninth grade and I considered high school and make sure that I didn't leave to go smoke and so like I quit wow. uh, business. So I moved down to San Antonio with my parents. I left one Christmas and, and stayed with them. And this was at a time when my dad would spring on me and my mom and sisters that he is going to live an alternative lifestyle. He's actually gay. After having uh, four children and being married for close to 20 years at the time. And I'm like, I think I was 15 or 16. I'm like, wow. I didn't know what that meant at that age. This was, this was what, 38, 40 years ago, something like that. And uh, I that didn't land well with me. What do you mean you're gay and you're leaving the family? And yeah, that's how it went down. So here I was learning how to be a man, or I thought I was learning how to be a man, and my dad wants to be with men. I, it just didn't compute in my head. So now, I, you know, I'm already getting in trouble. I'm already rebelling. I'm already doing the, the marijuana and drinking and stuff. But now, now I'm really angry. And um, it just didn't go over well. My mom and my sisters and I moved back to Utah. And I think, you know, and I vowed that I would be a, the, the male of the house, you know, I would take care of mom and my sisters and I didn't, I just started partying. I was introduced to cocaine, to, to LSD, mushrooms. Um, I dropped out of school uh, to, to work full time so that I could support my habits. And I'm literally 16, 17 years old, you know, and uh, it wasn't looking good. I did hold down a full-time job in the construction industry. I was framed homes for a living, but instead of being a good uh, older brother and, and good son to my mom, you know, I, was, I, was, I wasn't living accordingly. So this went on for, this went on for a while, you know, the, norm, the normal drinking and, and smoking pot and what I thought was normal and, you know, it's just what we did. I worked hard. Um, I ended up uh, ended up with a gal, um, and we started having kids. I just why not? Let's just start having kids. I ended up marrying her. I think after our third child, but it's like we just that was the thing to do to start having kids. And so all of a sudden, I go from not having a dad or not even knowing what a dad was like because he never really was. We're looking back at like all the. The signs of like what his life, why he was like that. He never really was part of the family. He took care of our family. Don't get me wrong. My dad, my dad always, my, he was responsible. He was a hard worker, and he made sure we had what we needed. But he never went to soccer games or football games, things like this. Didn't get involved. You know, it was just all about all the working and hard work. And uh, I, I resented him for that. But uh, here I was now myself starting a family and I I didn't even know how to be a dad. I didn't I didn't take to that initial moment when the child is born, you know, that immediate connection. It was just like what do I do? Just pay for, you know, just make sure the children are fed and paid for. And I wasn't really jiving, you know, I wasn't really connected as a father or a spouse. And so um we did get married in our thinking our living room. It was just it was low key and it just wasn't right. Um, I started my own company at the bequest of uh, her uncle. He, he knew that he saw that I could, I was really good at what I did. 
really good at framing homes and uh, he wanted me to start a company and I did. Then it went bad. He was in it for the money and blah, blah, blah. That's kind of how that went down at that time. No, um, this was the mid nineties. Uh, I, I still enjoyed hunting and fishing. I went on a hunting trip where we went out coyote hunting or something. And I was with a couple guys and we were in a truck. It was winter time. We were up in Wyoming somewhere. And one of my friends, he reached around behind me and he had a CD case and he reached around behind me and there was some powder on it from the CD case. And I said, here, snort this. I said, okay, why not? I'll do it. You know, my motto was I'll try anything once except for boys. I said, I pretty much do anything in life, you know, but except for boys, maybe because my dad was gay. So willing to do and try anything for the fun of it, it, it was crank. It was, a, you know, it was an amphetamine before meth came out, and uh, I fell in love. I remember the time that I drank alcohol, how much I was in love with alcohol. Well, this, this feeling that came over my head when I did crank, which is an amphetamine, was I can't even express to you the love I had for life. All, all of a sudden, I loved everything in life. I loved the guy who gave it to me. I loved looking out the window. I loved... I love the thought, hey, I'm going to be able to work on a job site 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm going to make millions of dollars and everything's going to be fine. Now, that's not how it went down, obviously, because, you know, there's reality. And uh, I fell into not only a crank addiction, but it seemed like a short couple months later, someone came around with this clear powdery stuff. And it was called methamphetamine. And if I thought that I loved crank, well, meth was just like a way more beautiful woman than crank. Crank was dirty, and, and you know, and, and meth was just so much cleaner and higher. And now I'm and now I'm pretty much crazy, right? Now I'm all, I'm all this. I'm pretty much an amphetamine user addict, and um, my business only lasted maybe six months to a year. Construction company was doing really well. Had. I mean, I had great potential. Um, I, I stopped going to the job site. I'd, I'd take my trailer and truck to, to work, and I'd end up going to the dope man's house or, or leaving my guys unattended, you know, my employees. And so I lost that company real quick. And with that, uh, crystal meth at the time was really expensive. It's, uh, it was uh manufactured here in the states uh, compared to where you know now some mostly in mexico but um i couldn't i ended up not being able to afford it what i did the ingenious person i thought i was well i'll just start making it why don't i just start making it and then i don't have to pay 350 dollars for an eight ball and um i just started making it now all of a sudden i'm a mess yeah, long story short and i walked away for my wife and children, I abandoned my wife and children to be a mess cook. And I left one day for diapers and milk and bread, and they will still harass me to this day about this. And I didn't go home for two weeks. And uh, I went and cooked meth, and I went on, and I ended up with a couple girlfriends at the same time I was married to cooking meth because meth cooks were real popular and important people in society. You see, that's what I thought. And um, I ended up having two children out of wedlock with a couple of these girlfriends while I was married to my wife. And so definitely devastated. This woman, my wife, I was married to at the time. And you can imagine 
the trauma and pain that caused not only her but my children as well to have have siblings, you know, inside this marriage. And uh, my life was now on the downward downward spiral. I was I, there was no hope left at that point. Um, many people who have done meth know immediately what it does to your mind. It shuts off any form of common sense, and and that just goes to the wayside. And, so I was addicted to math. I was manufacturing math. And um, lo and behold, the guy, one of my partners that I was working with, ended up getting caught by the, by the marshals or um, police. And he ended up setting me up. <laughs> so now um, manufacturing is a first-degree felony in the state of Utah. It's a five-to-life sentence. And now all of a sudden I go from you know, these stolen cars at 12 years old, that's not much. Well, now I'm a big time criminal and I just got charged with a manufacturing charge. And uh, I sat in jail for a year on it. And, um, and they let me out. They gave me a chance to go to a place called Odyssey House. I don't know if they have those in Texas. They're all over the country, but very intense program at the time. It was like, it was four to six years long, like an inpatient program that you basically are sentenced to and you're committed to. And I went, well, great, I'll go do Odyssey House. And it let me out to go try that. And I walked in the back door and the next morning I snuck out the window. So I wasn't going to do a program. I, I wanted to get high. I, mm -hmm. I was methamphetamine and um, I had thrown so much of my life away at that time. I couldn't see ever coming back from it. It's all the things I had lost, um, including my wife and children. There was just not going to be any coming back from that. So I, I just wanted to go back to music and then get back in that mindset that I don't think about all those things I've lost and the, the pain. Um, when I walked away from the program, and, I, and this was after a judge told me, I'm going to give you a chance in this program. If you mess up, you're going to go to prison. Well, I, I didn't hear them. I must not have heard them. I must have been like short of hearing from running saws and nail guns, whatever. Or it's just me because I heard, but I didn't think about what would happen when I left and I was sentenced to prison for the first time mm. um, when I ran from that program. And uh, that was a big, that was a big to do. I was pretty scared. You know, there's the things that happened in prison are true. Uh, I won't go into them. They didn't, they are and they're not. I mean, you, you know, prison, you can navigate, you can, you can, get in trouble if you want and you can go that way or you can be a victim or you can you can choose to, to do your own time you, you know it's it's really it's really up to the person but it was scary um i got sentenced to prison uh 23 months 26 months the first time on my charge until i hit the pro board um i did a drug program I was walking the line in there really staying out of trouble um, I was ready to be the man I knew I could be in life, got out of the prison gates, and they let me out after 24, 26 months, and, uh, and went and checked in with my parole officer, and he said, Todd, you can do anything, just don't do meth. I'm like, well, what does that mean? These people keep giving me this ultimatum, the judges, now my parole officers tell me I can do anything. Well, anything to me means meth, so... I think I was literally out of my first parole a couple of weeks after being locked up for 26 months. I made it, it might've been a couple months. I don't remember. It was in uh, 2001, I got out. 
But um, immediately I went back to prison. And I didn't understand because I consider myself a fairly smart kid. I didn't uh, I didn't finish high school until I got to prison. Actually, I took my GED, but I would, I would go on and, and take a psychology degree uh, later in life. Um, but I've considered myself pretty smart. I just couldn't stay away from this methamphetamine. It was there was no way that if you even take the handcuffs off me or let me out of the prison, uh, that's what I'm going to, to straight to. You know, no, it didn't matter. Just like a, a dog returning to his vomit every time. And I didn't understand it. And they put me back in prison. And um, here I was again. And and I told them, I, I think I'm crazy for coming back here this soon. And they took me literally and they put me in the forensic unit in prison for testing the evaluation. And I told, literally told them I thought it was crazy. And uh, what would happen was that would serve a, a purpose. I was around... Um, therapist because a couple months after being back there on the uh, I was still in the holding cell for 24 hours a day it was pretty rough they called me out to the button they said Hulk come out to the button someone in your family's died and that's uh, that's a pretty cold way to tell somebody and you know prison to, there's not very much empathy in, in prison and they just said come out to this little squat box on the wall someone's died and I so I'm, I'm freaking out. I go out there, and uh, I didn't have a phone call. I used my only phone call for the weekend. They weren't going to give me one. Wait, you're telling me somebody's died. And they're just like, no, wait, and the therapist is going to come see you and tell you. Oh, no. Oh. And the way it went down, it was, in, I will never, I, I never thought it would have been this person, but I, we went in an office, and uh the therapist, we made a call, and I can still remember the, you know, the call, the voice call, and we could both hear it. And I called home to my sister, and she told me my baby sister had died in a motel. She was 20 years old, and she had died around seven of my so-called friends using the meth. And they cleaned up the room around her, and they left her there. They didn't call to get her help. They didn't try to revive her. They cleaned up the room around her and left my sister's uh, cold, dead body in the motel room. My so-called friends. So that was real hard on me. That uh, that was a, a turning point, I would say, but a turning point for the worst. Like I was already messed up from the drugs, but now now this was real. Now the life's been taken from this, right? And I, now I told you I didn't feel like I was a great older brother, a great example as an older brother. And so I start taking this on. This is my fault, you know, and. Uh, so now I'm really hell-bent for leather. You know, on one hand, I'm saying, Becky, I promise I'll never do drugs again. I'm going to live your life. It's a legacy. They let me, they wouldn't even let me go to the, to the funeral without paying two federal marshals $10,000 a piece because I had not shown up for court. You know, that's the thing about do what I'm supposed to do, but that one choice I have over here, I'd always take that other choice. And so it didn't look good for me to, and I didn't want the people at the funeral, my family, to see me in shackles and chains. But um, it was hard. I got out, and uh, my sister showed me pictures of her funeral until one came up with her in the casket, and that floored me. Um, that was probably the hardest picture for me or hardest scene I've ever seen in my life. And uh, instead of not doing drugs, I think I lasted a couple months, a couple more months out on parole that time, and I fell off again. You know, I just, um, 
I wasn't getting it. Um, I was bound and determined to destroy myself. Um, the pain was too much. Um, I ended up uh, going back to third time state prison and they finally terminated me. I think this were about six years into this prison system thing by now. They, they're finally terminating me and a week before my termination out of state prison, um, I get a knock at the door, not a knock at the door, but a couple of visitors saw up. One of them was a federal prosecutor who had an attorney for me and I had, they're gonna now federally indict me on charges of manufacturing that I had done when I was out on parole. So now I've been to state prison and now the feds have picked me up and I'm a week from getting out of state prison and now the feds want me. And, and I'm thinking, no. And I know that the feds have a 95% success rate in convicting people. If they have a case against you, you're basically done. If they, if they open an indictment on you, you're done. And so I thought, I asked, what do you want? And it was a partial fingerprint of a scar I have on my finger that was on a piece of glassware. Partial fingerprint, and it does not even, they have to have 12 points usually to a Latin fingerprint. They only had nine, but they have a scar on my finger placing me at the scene. I said, so what do you guys want? And they said, well, the guidelines are, are three years, zero, zero to three years, but if you fight it, we'll give you 10 for conspiracy to commit the crime. Said, oh, so I signed up for three years, and lo and behold, I got out of state prison, everything's fine, and I think it was about, went back to work, and and the first week or two I was working, the marshals stormed my house and took me in on this federal case. So here we go again. You know, it's just when I thought I was doing right. I had a little bit of hope. I was going to do well. And, you know, my past would come back to haunt me. And that wasn't so bad. You know, my, it was going to be three years. I think I ended up stretching that out more than three. But um, I was in holding, I was in a holding cell waiting for what's called Con Air. Many people know what Con Air is. It's a cool little movie. It's real, real close to the movie, but Con Air is how they fly you to federal prison. And um, I was waiting for Con Air to pick me up. And I got another one of those phone calls about someone in my family dying in the same cold way. Come out to the, to the button on the wall and someone in your family's died. And, uh, reluctantly and wondered, you know, with everything going on in my head, who could this be this time? I got out there and was told that my 16-year-old daughter had taken her own life. And, um, yeah, this was the daughter I was supposed to be a father to. This was, you know, I was supposed to be her dad. You know, I, was, I wasn't supposed to cook math and... and and do all these things. I was supposed to give her a life, you know, and protect her. And um, I failed miserably at that. So that was hard. The feds weren't going to let me go to that funeral for sure. They weren't going to, you know, get let out of civil custody. And so there's a lot of, a lot of anger and resentment there, mostly towards myself. But here I am piling all these things in this bag of resentments behind me for my choices and actions. And uh, this is pretty serious now. Two, two lives. Innocent lives lost, which I felt were on my watch, you know, my responsibility. And so there wasn't, you know, I, I remember that being just, I went out to prison, I think that time, a year or so. It was a short guy, a short guideline they signed me up for, so that I still messed it up. I was there a year or so in Arizona and came home and, and messed up again. They finally terminated me, I think, after three or four tries. 
in the federal system. And uh, I'm, I'm just a mess, right? I'm, uh, the drugs weren't working, but I couldn't live without them. I, I moved home to the mom's basement in Salt Lake, and I basically just lived being high on meth. I didn't want to go out and commit crime to, to acquire the drugs, but, but I didn't want to work. I didn't want to live. I was just in a real bad place. Um, and I just, I existed like that. I would tell you that the worst, the worst feeling I've ever had in my life is using meth or any drugs and someone or something not stepping in to intervene, not getting caught, just living in a, in a place of, uh, like no hope. There's no hope at all, you know? So I was existing like this. And thankfully, the drug came along. And, uh, but it's, it's, this was my only saving grace. Um, a couple years into this, um, someone brought over this stuff called Basil. I don't know if y'all heard of that down in Texas. Have you ever heard of that? It's a, it's I've a designer heard the, drug. I've heard the term, but educate, educate yeah, me. Yeah, but it's, uh, it's not that stuff that your granny had on, on by the bath. <laughs> it was a, that's a marketing ploy they, you know, they actually used to sell it in smoke shops and stuff. But if I thought that I loved meth and crank, when I tried this stuff, I would cheat on meth and crank any day with bath salt. It was like 50 times stronger than meth and crank and cocaine put together, right? Now I say I'm a saving grace. Now this is gonna be this is gonna be my world. Unfortunately, it became my world and uh and the insanity. And if I thought that I was making poor choices on meth. Basalt so much personally. To even think that I can still put sentences together is pretty much a miracle today from my use. I used it intravenously. I used math intravenously. I, I was a mess. This would go on <clears throat> a number of years. I just exist. I ended up accruing some charges, smaller charges. Once again, didn't go to court for them. Ended up on probation for them. But uh, in 2017, I was with a, a Lifelong friend of mine, and we were real high on basalt. And uh, he had been jumped by some gang members of a opposing gang. I never got into the gang. So, um, uh, wasn't I wasn't like it. I knew a lot of gang. I knew guys from. I knew most of the leaders of most two gangs. If that makes any sense, because I sold the meth. Right, meth doesn't. It's not racist. It's not biased. Doesn't matter what color you are, what gang you're from. Everybody wanted meth. So I was pretty much in good with everyone. But uh, this friend of mine, he was from a certain uh, gang he affiliated. And anyway, he had been jumped by these guys and came and asked me if, if I'd go back and help him tune these guys up. You know, I thought, well, yeah, sure, I'll go. You know, he had his eye knocked out with a hammer. So I thought, well, you know, I'll, sure, I'll go help you tune these guys up. Well, long story short, uh, I was driving the car and, and this friend got out and uh, killed an innocent person. He got out with a gun and emptied the clip. And he, he killed an innocent person. It just so happened to be a woman. It wasn't even the gang members that he was going after. And uh, that's kind of it's a messy story to talk about. But that now there's now there's three innocent girls gone, and you know, which I felt very responsible for. I ended up sitting in at first, I, you know, I'm not gonna talk. I've got a phone big code, I'm not gonna tell on him, you know, and so I, for, for telling him, and I'm not going to tell him to work with him, I sat in jail for two years 
straight until, until they figure that out. And jail's a lot harder time in prisons. You know, prisons are made more so for guys to do longer periods of time. And so two years in jail, it was it was real. It was sad. It was another waste of time. But that was pretty much the icing on the cake for my addictive ways. You know, um, I still didn't know how to stay sober. I just knew that another life law, I mean, at some point in time, you've got to take responsibility for your actions and and um, and get what we get right, right? I mean, my mom sat up by her phone for 25 or 30 years wondering if I was going to be dead. She, she buried her youngest daughter. Uh, my second daughter, her second daughter, I didn't tell you about um, the day after that sister died. Uh, my other sister went into what's called psychosis, meth-induced psychosis, and she never came all the way back from it. <laughs> Excuse me. So my family's pretty much been decimated by meth. And so it, it, when this happened in 2017, I sat in jail and just thinking, I didn't even want to get out of jail. I didn't even feel like I deserved to get out of jail. I was in the car. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't know he was going to do that, but he did. <laughs> Excuse me. And so... I ended up getting out, and once again, I went and got high. That's all I knew how to do. I went and got high on meth. And at that time, it was immediately at that time, I, I, I started bawling. I can't, I can't do this anymore. I'm not going to get out here and get high. Not in the name of these girls who have passed. I'm not going to let it go down like that. You know, I can't do this. And I ended up going back into treatment. Uh, a treatment center, Odyssey House, by coincidence, it was funny. But I stayed there a year and um, learned all I could learn, and I still relapsed. And I was I was suicidal at that point. Of like, if I can't if I can't live this life without getting high, I don't want to live anymore. I'm hurting too many people. I'm hurting my family. I'm a, I'm a nemesis of, uh, to society. I don't. This is not who I am. This is not who I know myself. Who I am inside, and this was not the person and the man I wanted to be. So one of a chance, a God intervening, a spiritual awakening. There was a treatment center in Central Utah that focused on quantum level, quantum physics, holographic human stuff. Um, Learning why our brain does what why our brain does what it does, instead of people telling me, "Well, you're you're an addict, and this is how your cycle goes, and this is what you do." I know I'm an addict. I know how my cycle goes. Tell me how to fix one. Tell me how to better this. Well, this quantum approach actually showed me that uh, it's our through our senses in our body and through how we think, our subconscious works as a program. Our subconscious is constantly telling us what to do. And so that's all my brain was doing. You know, I would, you would use, you would get a feeling from it. And that's all I knew. The feeling, use, go to prison, get out, same thing over and over again. Well, this, uh, this quantum level approach taught me how to imprint or reprogram on top of these old programs, if you will. And uh, it worked. And it's by way of uh, guided imageries and guided techniques and and telling my mind certain things and practicing it, and by the grace of God, uh, I've stayed sober in that aspect. If that was if that was the end of the story, everything would be grand, but I would be blessed with a couple more challenges. We'll say, 
a couple years ago when I got out of that program, um, I had a lump on the side of my neck because they had pulled a bunch of teeth because meth's bad for your teeth, by the way. If anybody doesn't know how their meth's bad for your teeth. <laughs> they pulled a few teeth and it left a lump on the side of my neck that I went home with. And I thought it was just my, you know, my lymph nodes acting up from them pulling the teeth. Well, um, I went in and they biopsied it. And I sat in a doctor's office one fine day when they told me that I had stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma. It was spread throughout my body. It was in every every organ and every lymph node, stage four plus, and that I was going to die from it, but not that day. That's, that's basically how they told me. And in my head, I'm thinking with God, dude, you and I have come a long way, and I'm not going that way. But it's, uh, I probably was really thinking, I'll do anything, God, just don't kill me. You know, I was making deals, right? I had lived in a 25-year meth and bath salt addiction all these lives lost. I couldn't go out. My life was, I'm not ready to be done yet. I have had too much making up to do. And so uh, I started going. I made, I didn't make any deals because we don't make deals with God, but I, I begged God. I said, I don't, please, you know, pull me through this. And uh, I started chemo. I went through chemo. And uh I won't go too much into it, but uh, there's uh, my fifth month in chemo. I was at an out, our outpatient. I was still going to outpatient every day and trying to show up and laugh. And chemo was hard. Chemo was really hard. It's like when you do chemo, it's like, I mean, I felt really lousy in my life. I've overdosed a bunch of times. I've been dead before. But chemo is like taking your body and just bringing it out. And, you know, you don't. You don't really want to live after chemo, but I wanted to live, you know, like what, what's the options here? And uh, I went to the chemo and, and the fifth month out of six, that I went around what's called the energy enhancement system. There, there are these machines that emit scalar waves. And I, I won't go into it. It's a big, big story because it's part of my life's and I, our lives now because we actually bought the facility that does this, but what the machines are is they emit scalar waves and scalar energy raises the body's energy, it corrects your DNA and lengthens the telomeres in your DNA and quadruples the mitochondria in your bloodstream. And what happened was I went around this and all of a sudden I started feeling better. It was like a gift from God. I'm like, no way, you know, and uh, long story short, I was going around these machines. I ended up with the opportunity to open the first facility in Utah and the Huntsman Cancer Institute here in Salt Lake can't figure out why I'm still in remission. You know, I'm two years in remission. They say 95% of people with my blood cancer relapse back into cancer the first year. And I'm going on two years in remission. That's almost the end of the story, Christine. I got one, one, one little bit here left for you. You're the damn, uh, you're the damn energizer bunny. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, you'll, you'll like this one, man. I get so I've been around these machines. I'm living my best, I'm not living my best life. I'm coming back from chemo, kills all your white blood cells, like kills everything. Well, these the scalar energy was rebuilding this, and the cancer institute can't figure out how I'm doing this, but that wouldn't be the, the end of the story. A couple months later, I was in the grocery store, and my heart started hurting, and I fell down on the ground, not down on the knee, and my heart was hurting. And I thought, I don't know. And I tell this jokingly, but the first thing I thought was, I wasn't in Walmart. I said, thank God I'm not going to die in Walmart. <laughs> I, 
Because there are some weirdos up in Wyoming. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter <laughs> where you go. That is not the place you want to die. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't want to die, but my heart was hurt. Long story short, four or five days later, I was in emergency open heart surgery for what they call a widowmaker. I had an aneurysm that grew in my aorta that would have killed me. They said, how did I, you know, here you go. So I'm like, here we go. It's a conversation with God again. I'm like, dude, I wanted to live from cancer, but I I didn't really ask for this part, you know. So went through the open heart surgery and I made it. And I'm still here and I'm gratefully blessed. And a couple months after that, I was really lonely. I this is the last thing I need to woman in my life, right? Because I, I didn't deserve them by any means, but uh I got on, I was getting on these stupid sites like Kinder or Tinder or Binder or what, I don't know what they're called. They're just these, you know, where I was looking for a little bit of attention and I may have may, may not have posted some pictures on there. And they some somebody saw these pictures or used and sent me back the thing saying they wanted ten thousand dollars or they were gonna share these pictures with my mom. And I said, do they not know my my mom? No, my mom knows I've been charged with murder before. Do they not know my like my mom's going to care about these stupid pictures? So I was really frustrated. Really, just wanted to be loved and to love somebody. And I ended up posting on a site called Silver Singles because I had just turned fifty years old. I would never do anything in my life like this. This was a last ditch effort, last straw. Like saw it, like just roll the dice. And lo and behold. There was a pretty little blonde gal um, about two hours away from me in Logan, Utah, and way up north here in this brutally cold place in Utah, posting on a site called Educated Singles. Now, that's the, the irony of this is Educated Singles. Like, right, they hooked us up together. <laughs> she posted on Educated Singles, and I'm on Silver Street. And anyway, they all work together, right? So we come together and I guess it was a match made in heaven because we eloped a year ago in November. We went to Sedona, Arizona and she couldn't wait to get a ring on my finger or vice versa. But I ended up with a woman who's 35 years into recovery um, herself. And she's also a doctor in natural medicine and she's a licensed therapist and she taught me how to raise my frequency. She taught me about frequency because when I was there, when when I was in my addiction and I was doing all these shady, dark crimes and things, think of that as like a 50 or 25 frequency. And then think of think of Buddha or the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa as a 700 frequency, right? And so I, I could wrap my head around this. This was kind of like the quantum stuff that got me sober. And so my wife was kind of a godsend in this way that she was there and the one that's going to teach me how to be a better person now. How you know? Because I didn't want to just get sober and be a normal everyday person. I, I don't. I don't think any of us want to do that. When we've suffered so much in our addiction, we want to exceed that two or three hundred frequency where everybody else talks out about in the world. Policemen, firemen, school teachers—they're all great people. Mm -hmm. They go, they do their job, they go home, they pay their bills, they don't cause the scene. But I'm not content with just being out. I want to. I want to spread the word, Christine. Mm -hmm. I want to. I want everybody to get sober. Mm -hmm. So, so I was blessed with my wife, and I'll just throw. I'm going to throw a plug in there. She told me it's not a Bible, but it's called A Course in Miracles, and she teaches a meditation group on this. And I start getting involved. 
know, this, this is a guy who's got ADD. I couldn't meditate to save my life. Mm -hmm. I spent 17 years in prison and still couldn't meditate. And that's sitting in a cell, a dark cell. I talked to God, but I never learned how to meditate. So now my wife is teaching me about raising my frequency. Um, this Course of Miracles, it's not a Bible, it's not a religion. It is It is uh, the word, of, they say a word of Jesus that came to an atheist. I think she was a psychiatrist in the 60s. And so it's funny how it came about. But it's just one of the things I do today to better myself. Um, I... Uh, I, I'd still, I attended a 12-step anonymous group a weekly, a couple times a week. Um, I'm working on writing my book. My wife is an author also. She's got seven or eight books, and and she's written a story, our story, and my story combined this last year in my recovery. She's combined it with the teachings, and I'll, I'll share that information with you. You can point people towards this book that's sure. coming out. Sure. Uh, it's how the, it's how I stayed sober, and she's she's taught me that that there is hope. Because that's all I really want to do is spread hope. Yeah, like, like I think that's what you're passing and what you're you're doing too. Is yes, sir. Just want to spread hope to people that uh, there is a way out. Even a guy who's been in prison six times and and those are, those are just three deaths that were real close to me. I mean, to tell I didn't get graphic and tell you about all the deaths. I think we've all seen bad things but you know and i don't tend to focus on those anymore but i noticed that each day if i can wake up and suit up and just show up and a lot of days it's hard mm -hmm. because i'll tell you i've got an amazing life my, my my wife came we i came into this and she's well to do i'm not going to say that i that i found a sugar mama by any means but um it's it's hard wanting to go out and and really look for more when I have everything I need. I'm I'm sober. I'm in recovery. I'm not sitting in a prison. I'm not sitting in the back of a police car. I'm not laying on the gurney when my family's being pulled to come in and say bye to me because I'm going to die. That happened more than once. Mm -hmm. I have a, I have an amazing life today, and so I'm fully I'm I'm, I'm gratefully blessed which is where I'm at today. So there are days I struggle with, with wanting to more, wanting to do more, but I feel like part of the, like stuff like this is, you know, part of my purpose, helping to spread the word, because I know there's people out there right now in this brutal cold that's, that's killing a lot of homeless people mm -hmm. that are with addiction right now and don't feel any hope and don't know that there's any hope, you know? And so if I can help even reach one of those and, I feel like that's why God's kept me around as well as you and, and what you're doing, you know? Amen. Amen. Thank Sorry. you for that, Todd. I, and I got to tell you, yeah, just, man, it, the Energizer Bunny just came to mind. And it's one of those things that that um, we can't waste a hurt. We can't waste a hurt. And and I, I think I speak for both of us when I say the gratitude that is so internal for having survived what we have survived. It just, that's almost a drug itself. Right. Okay. And it's like, when, when you think about, you know, someone had asked me before, before I even started this podcast, you know, who's your audience. And it, and, and I had to think for a minute and I, I can, like I said, I, I in hearing your story, I know that you, you have that ability to, to just kind of go, you know, um, uh, twilight zone right back to 
getting that phone call regarding your sister or getting that phone call regarding your baby girl or getting that diagnosis, that, that just hopelessness, you know, which to me is hell. That's, that's a, that's a separation from God that just, it it's that just, and so when you have that hope, it's like, you just can't contain it. You have to, you, you're, you're, it's like your soul has to, you have to share, you know? So, and and so my answer was, I want to reach that me that was ready to eat a bullet. I want to reach that person to just go one more day. Give me one more hour, one more hour, because I truly believe that broken spirits recognize broken spirits. And thus healed spirits or, you know, broken spirits also recognize healed spirits. You know, as well as I do, we can talk to a normie and re or, or someone who's, I, you know, there is such a thing as problem drinkers. You know, there is some people that have dabbled in pills or dabbled in, you know, what I, I'm not, I'm talking about us that, that, <laughs> that, that it almost took out, you know, there people recognize that and can call us on our bullshit just as soon as look at us. I mean, you, you know, it, when you're authentic, the reach that you have for that person that still suffers, that's just freaking gold, man. That's God's hand. That is wow. God's hand reaching out to save you and me that's still out there, you know? And when you don't honor that, things suffer. That's what I've learned at least about myself. That's why, you know, I'm a mortgage broker by trade. Believe you me, I have a full-time job. I need to be uptown right now at my desk. But the fact of the matter is, is to not do, and this is just what God has just laid in front of me for now to try to spread that hope, to not do that in, is, is not honoring a part of me that, um, it's just that there's, just, it's not as if I have a choice, you know, just like, just like with you. I mean, the, the fact of, oh my gosh, you look, look at all of that. You just told me and look at you, look at you, you know, someone told me once, um, you know, my higher power who I choose to call God, someone, someone told me or asked me, um, you know, what, what do you want? What do you want out of this life? And it's like, mm, what I, my goal is because I, I believe there is a heaven. I, I, I believe that I've, I probably will go there if, if, you know, if, if I don't fall too far, uh, my goal is to have maybe one person come up to me and say, I'm here because of what you said or what you did, or you, you showed up. Mm-hmm. That's a good purpose. That's all I want. I'll write a home loan when I go back up town and I'll do, but the, but the fact that we can turn our mess into our message and test into our testimony and share that we can't hold that. That is such a, you know, I have come to, it took me a while and I'm sure it took you a while too. And you're still probably working on it to have such gratitude for my past. You know, I just, I have to, I have to, to honor even the terrible things because that's what, look at you sitting in, it looks, appears to be a beautiful home. You've got a gorgeous wife that adores you. What? Some of these things had to happen for that path to lead where you're sitting right now. So it's yeah. like, it's, 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 I don't know. I, I just, 
I love recovery and it's, you know, I, I too, when you're talking about, you know, I, I can't, I can't use and I can't not use, you know, it's, it's like, what's the point of even being here? That's, that's the worst feeling in the world. The worst. The worst. I love your passion and enthusiasm. It helps. It definitely helps me. That's what, that's my biggest take from this is that, you know, that's where my fire lies too. You are, you are ordained by God. I, I don't know if I have the right to say it, but I'm going to say it twice. You are ordained by God. God is going to use you in such ways. Mm-mm-mm. You scare me. <laughs> I can't, I can't wait to see that, you know, it, because I, I can just, I, you know, I know that we're on zoom and I know that I can't hug your neck, but I'm just telling you right now that I feel your heart. And I know that you have a passion to save people that are still out there to, to be a vessel. I know you can't save people. Let me, let me back that truck up. We can't, I can't save it, but I can, I can be willing to be a vessel to use my experiences to benefit others. And, and sure. when you do that, all other things just seem to fall into a cute little line right behind it. And life is beautiful. Sure. You know, when we never thought it was going to be. How can people uh, reach you or, you know, tell, tell me the things? I've got, I've started a, a Facebook page called Reeling in Recovery, capital R-E-A-L. And it's funny because... It, I'm, a, I'm a big fisherman, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was going to be spelled reeling like you, you were normal reeling, but it was already taken. So my wife and I came up with this idea. Well, what about capitalizing R-E-A-L? Because I, I feel like I can now honestly say I'm real about my recovery. Right. So reeling and recovery or uh, Todd E. Hall on my Facebook. My wife, so my wife says, well, if you had your book written, you can tell her that you have a book. But she's, I, I can share... My wife has a landing page, I think, for the book that where that she's written with for, for we're not she's looking for a beta reader. So I'll share that information with you. Yeah, send me um, an email. Send me an email with well. the, all those things. And yeah, I'll yeah. definitely get it linked when the when the episode drops for sure. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And then uh yeah, I'm, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. You know, thank you for having me on and and uh hope Th- spread the thank you for surviving. Thank you. I Thank you for that. surviving it. We need you. Yeah. We, 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 as in the warriors that, that, you know, are, are just trying to spread the message. We need you a strong person with a testimony, man, you got to start screaming from the mountaintops. And I know you are, I know you are. And that's amazing. God bless you, Todd Hall. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the purpose driven sobriety podcast. Thanks for listening to Purpose Driven Sobriety. Keep coming back. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.